In the early 1900s, there was a huge split within Christianity in the Western world. And this split occurred because of two different views of the kingdom of God. Some believers were convinced that the task of the church was to bring about the kingdom now by rescuing the poor and the needy and restoring them to a whole life. Other believers were convinced that the kingdom of God would not come now. So the task of the church was to spiritually rescue lost people and prepare them for the future kingdom. Now, I happen to believe that each group was half right. You see, the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is here right now because Jesus began to bring it into existence during his ministry. And yet we also know that the perfect kingdom cannot exist in a broken world. And so we also must be prepared to fully receive the completed kingdom in the next life. In other words, the kingdom of God is both present and future. It's now and not yet. And so we have a dual task. We want to help people get a glimpse of God's kingdom today. And we need to give them hope through Jesus for the kingdom that will come. And we do this by sharing God's love in practical ways to help our world overcome things like poverty and prejudice and injustice. And as people are mercifully restored to the wholeness of life, then hopefully we can share with them the good news of Jesus, the Savior who spares us from the justice of God, who mercifully takes away our sins and offers us the hope of eternity. Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We have a message of justice and mercy that affects people now and affects our world now and forever. And that's why we must embrace the principles given to us through an ancient Hebrew prophet in Micah 6, 8, principles that serve as the theme for this message. And I'd like us to read those aloud together as we've been doing every week during this series. Please read with me. What does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? We've already looked at how these principles of justice and mercy apply to personal salvation, to getting ourselves right with God. And this morning we want to understand how how these principles also are a call to action for us as believers to be engaged with our world so that we can bring God's mercy to those who are oppressed and marginalized. As scripture makes very clear, God wants to end oppression and bring about true justice in his world as he establishes his kingdom. And we find this principle expressed repeatedly throughout the Bible. We find it clearly stated in Psalm 103, verse 6, where the psalmist writes, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Very short, succinct, to the point. And this touches on the mercy of God. You see, mercy in the Bible always involves some form of rescue, either rescue from justice that we deserve or rescue from injustice that we do not deserve. Oppressed people are victims of injustice, so they need 
to be rescued. They need God's mercy. And the psalmist tells us that God is actively working to make that happen. Now, unfortunately, in our day, the word oppression has become overused and highly politicized. And I'm concerned that some of you may tend to hear what I'm saying today through the lens of politics. And so I want to be very clear that I have absolutely nothing political to say to you today. I want us to understand what God has to say about how justice and mercy can be brought by God's people into the lives of those who are oppressed. And so we need to start with this question, what does it mean to be oppressed? It's way more than just being mistreated. You are oppressed when the essential decisions of life are under the control of others. It might be powerful individuals, perhaps governmental rulers or unscrupulous rich people who hold you down and oppress you. You might be the victim of a powerful system, perhaps a legal system that favors certain groups and not yours, and that might hold you down and oppress you. And here are two examples. Number one, some societies make women the legal property of their fathers or husbands. And these women may be prohibited from voting or driving or even choosing their own clothing. And if they try to break free of the social restraints of their society, their own family might even kill them. That's oppression. And such women live today in many parts of the Middle East and Africa and elsewhere. Number two. Some societies deny equality under the law to people of a certain race or ethnic group or nationality. And such people might be prohibited from attending school or learning their own native language or doing, doing the kind of work that they would prefer to do. Slavery is an obvious and extreme example of that kind of oppression. And our nation still is working to leave that legacy behind us so that in our nation, blacks will be treated with true justice. But we're not alone. In the United Kingdom, the country of Wales is in the early stages of breaking free from injustice. Between the year 1536, the year 1536 and 1993, the English essentially made it illegal to use the Welsh language in public, to teach that language in school, or even to teach the history of Wales. And the Welsh often were forced into indentured servitude that was not much difference, but not much different than slavery. They were legally and socially marginalized for more than 400 years, and many English still despise them today. And I know that because I was in England and had an Englishman tell me to my face how revolting and disgusting the Welsh were. And why would any normal human being want to spend time with a Welshman? The Welsh people have been oppressed. So people like these and and so many others in our world need to be mercifully rescued, rescued from horrible injustice, injustice they do not deserve. 
And the good news is here in Psalm 103, in the midst of this psalm, which is a song of praise about the goodness of God, we're reminded that God sees the injustice of this world and is working to rectify it. God wants to end oppression. And that means the people of God should work with God to help end it. And so the psalmist celebrates this aspect of God's character and God's ministry to people. And he celebrates this fact because there are many times when the Israelites feel oppressed. They want to be set free. And yet here's the tragedy. Sometimes the oppressed become the oppressors. Tragically, the Israelites fall into that trap. And so God raises up the prophet Zechariah and he speaks to the people to chastise them. He chastises them because he wants them to know that God stands with the oppressed. Let's take a look at the book of Zechariah, chapter 7, starting in verse 8. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Now, Zechariah writes these words after the Israelites have spent 70 years in exile away from their homeland because God was punishing them and judging them. And God exiled them because they were outwardly practicing their religion while simultaneously promoting social injustice. And at the time Zechariah writes these words, God has ended the exile of Israel. He's allowed them to return home, but they haven't learned a thing. When you read a bit earlier in the chapter, you discover that the Jews are all concerned about fasting. They want to get fasting right. They're not concerned at all about the ongoing oppression in their society. So God speaking through Zechariah says, after 70 years, you're still missing the point. You see, if they practice fasting, while promoting injustice. It shows that their values are not aligned with the values of the kingdom of God. They are more concerned about their personal religious practices than they are with the world around them. And for God's people, it never can be just one or the other. It always must be both. Because that is the full message we have for this broken world. And so Zechariah challenges the people of God to get their priorities straight, to promote true justice where there is equality before the law and the scales are not tilted in favor of the rich and the powerful. And yet God wants the scales tilted in favor of the oppressed so they can be rescued from injustice. We never can forget that our God has a bias toward mercy. Because he is compassionate. And he wants us to be compassionate. And to make things clear and to bring it down to a practical level, Zechariah offers four specific examples of people in Hebrew society who are oppressed at that time and who need need God's people to be merciful to them. 
And so he, he mentions widows because they live a marginal existence on the bare edge of survival. The laws and traditions of that time favor men, so a woman alone is almost helpless. A widow can be ignored and mistreated, and, and hardly anybody will care. Zechariah mentions the fatherless. Being a single mother is not easy today. In ancient Israel, it was horrible. You lack power as a woman, which means your children also lack standing in the community, and they can be treated as second-class citizens. And then foreigners. There always were non-Jews living in Israel, and they often were excluded from owning land or owning a business or finding certain kinds of employment. And we need to be honest and realize how easy it becomes to discriminate against people who are not like us, those foreigners. And sadly, our nation has not been exempt from such unjust practices. During the 1800s and 1900s, we discriminated against a variety of foreign immigrants. In Pennsylvania, German farmers were called the refuse of the German people, and they were shunned. In New York City stores, it was common to see signs saying, help wanted, Irish need not apply. In Pendleton, Oregon, Chinese people could be shot on sight if they were out after dark. Injustice. What's so sad is that some of God's people supported these kinds of unjust attitudes and actions because they're foreigners. They're not like us. And today, immigrants come to our country from all over the world, and we each must decide how we will treat them. And the sad fact is that our immigration system is a mess which means this is a complex problem without easy answers. So you and I need to pray and ask God for wisdom. And we can't look to wisdom from our politicians. We can't expect wisdom from our preferred news stations or blogs or from our favorite talk radio hosts. We must let our worldview be shaped by the timeless wisdom of the scriptures. And here is what I believe God is asking of his people in this moment. How can we, as followers of Jesus, promote true justice and also show mercy to the foreigners who come to America? It is possible for us to do both if we think biblically rather than politically and if we listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit. God's people should not oppress Zechariah also mentions the poor. Now, it's important to note that simply being poor does not make you oppressed. You're oppressed if the laws and practices of your society make it virtually impossible for you to escape your poverty. And that happens far too often in our very broken world. Sometimes we find it easy to blame the poor 
of their situation when often it might be the broken systems that keep them poor. And I think we just need to prayerfully discern how we can help people escape the trap of poverty. These are the examples that Zechariah is given by God to share. And through these examples, it's clear that we cannot turn a blind eye to the world around us. God's people must become aware of areas where God's justice and mercy are desperately needed because God works against oppression and he stands with the oppressed. And we must discern how and where we also can stand with them. So Zechariah very clearly tells the people what God expects of them, but so sadly they don't respond well, as we see when we continue on in verse, um, where am I? Verse 11. Aha, right? Yes. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint. That is one hard heart. And would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. Why did the people turn away from God's wisdom? I think it was because of pride. They refused to be humble and extend mercy and compassion to others. And the sad fact is some people like a system tilted toward the rich and powerful. They're happy to keep other people down if it means they get ahead. And God was angry, so he sent them into exile. See, Zechariah is talking about what happened in the past here. And the Israelites are now out of exile, and, and they're making the same mistakes again. Zechariah is reminding them of the past consequences they experienced so that they will make every effort to remove injustice from their society. And sadly, the Israelites continue to fail. And just as sadly, so does the church. This problem continues in the New Testament times. And Christians become the ones marginalizing people and treating them unjustly. And so the Apostle James writes to admonish believers for failing to live out the principles of the kingdom of God. We find that in the book of James, chapter 1, starting in verse 27. And I lost my sticky note. Where did it go? Give me a minute to find my page, please. There it is. All right. James 1, 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Now think about those words and then look at this description. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Oh, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, Oh, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? According to James, pure religion has two parts. 
And one is to be personally pure by embracing the values of God's kingdom because the values of the world around us will pollute our thinking. We do need to pay attention to our personal spirituality. That's a key piece of following Jesus. But there's a second part of purity, and it deals with how we treat others, what we're doing in the world around us. And James says specifically it's by showing mercy to the marginalized. To be intentional about showing compassion toward people whom society may oppress. People like widows and orphans, who in that day were likely the most at-risk people, the most likely people to lack access to the basic needs of food and clothing and shelter. And people don't deserve that. It's not just. So they need to be rescued by God's mercy through the actions of God's people. James, just like the Hebrew prophets of old, wants us to know that showing mercy to the marginalized is an integral part of what it means to be a person of faith. And yet we undermine this kingdom value if we start to discriminate, which is what Christians are doing by favoring the rich over the poor. Now let's think about this for a minute. If we see someone playing favorites, we might say, well, that's inappropriate. We might even say that's rude or unfair. James calls it evil. It's a strong word, evil. And why would he say that? Because it's an example of letting our thinking become polluted by the world. When we play favorites, we marginalize people and treat them as second-class citizens. And enough, if enough people start playing favorites, and marginalizing others. And that takes root within a culture, then it ultimately can lead to outright oppression. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, we must wholeheartedly embrace the advice of James. We cannot discriminate. Instead, we must, like our God, work against oppression and tilt the scales toward mercy. Mercy for the marginalized so we can help rescue them and restore them to the wholeness of life and give them a taste of God's kingdom right now. Extending mercy so they can begin to taste and see that God is good. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this is a huge issue. And at times, it feels overwhelming and so I would, I'd like to kind of boil this down by suggesting four practical things that we can do to promote God's mercy and justice and to help bring kingdom values into our world so we're doing our part to help build the kingdom of God. So here's, here's suggestion number one, the first thing we can do. I think that for children in our local school district to go hungry is unjust. And so I want to encourage you to sign up for the Generosity Feeds event that Rob talked about earlier before the message. By the simple act of packing those meals, we are extending God's mercy to kids. And second, you can help with our Thanksgiving basket offering and distribution next month. Every year we give out 50 to 60 baskets to people who live on the margins. And sometimes when we show up with those, that basket of food and those supplies, we come into a home where the cupboard literally is bare. 
And you can join us as we extend God's mercy to our community. You'll hear more about this over the next few weeks. And third, I want to encourage you to give faithfully to our church because when you do, you invest in our benevolence ministry. We set aside money every month from our regular offerings to help people in need in our church. People who are part of this community of faith who are on the margins and need some help. And we include in that orbit the Kidmax families, those kids who participate in our after-school program on Fridays. And many of those kids are very much at risk. And sometimes we might find it easy to say, you know, I pay my taxes, and there's government programs that exist and all kinds of nonprofit agencies, but the reality is that government agencies and nonprofit groups cannot meet all the needs. They can't help all the people all the time, and many people fall through the cracks. And that's why God's people must stand in the gap. We do that through our benevolence ministry, coming alongside people at a critical moment with the help of finances and other practical things to get them over the hump. And we hope you'll be part of this effort to show God's mercy to people in need. And you do that by making contributions to the church. And fourth, we can be agents of God's mercy by the way that we shop. In our digital world, it's easier than ever to be informed about injustices that might exist in the supply chains of the products that we consume. And I'm really grateful to some of the young adults in our church who have educated me about these issues. And here's an example. I drink a lot of coffee. And I've learned that at many coffee plantations in South America, men, women, and children work in conditions that are not much different than slavery. And the workers have little hope of ever escaping their poverty and their oppressive working conditions. For this reason, a number of coffee companies are striving to promote better wages and living conditions for workers. Such coffee is sold under the fair trade label, which means that the workers are treated fairly and paid fairly. In other words, they are treated justly. And I believe that's the kind of thing that God wants to see in his world. For a coffee drinker like me, this is, this is a wake-up call. Because I want to be sure that I am not inadvertently promoting injustice. So I'm researching the coffees that I buy in an effort to make sure that I am doing my part as a follower of Jesus to extend God's mercy to oppressed help heal our world so people can see the compassion of the king of the kingdom of God. Now these are just a few examples. You might think of others. The most important thing I believe we need to understand from these Bible passages is that you and I cannot ignore injustice. And if we do, we're missing a key ingredient in what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. So I believe that we each need to pray and ask God this question. Father, how do you want me to act justly and love mercy and help restore our broken world? And so I wonder, what might God prompt you to do to help marginalize people 
get a glimpse of the kingdom of God so they can taste and see that the king of our kingdom is loving and compassionate and merciful. That more than anything, he wants to rescue them. Please pray about that. See what God might do.